If we are to exalt Jesus, and that's what we should do when we come together, we've already done that, right? People baptized, proclaiming that they know Jesus, and then declaring in song that everybody is welcome to come to salvation in and only through Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to encourage you to join me in Acts chapter 8. We began several weeks ago studying the church in its infancy here in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the birth of the New Testament church and watching it grow, and it has explosively grown. Coinciding that growth has been persecution. Peter and John were cast into prison, and we studied that out. Yet, they continued to proclaim the name of Christ. All of the apostles were cast into prison, miraculously delivered by an angel, and then going right back in and proclaiming the words of life again. And now this morning, we arrive in Acts chapter 8, And we will see the church continuing to endure what is termed here as great persecution. In fact, one author described following the church through the book of Acts like following a wounded deer through the forest, he said. Drops of blood mark the trail. Here in Acts chapter 8, I'll begin reading in verse 1. We're diving right into the middle of a story. Stephen has just been martyred. He's the first martyr For the cause of Christ, and we'll read this in verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death, and this is Saul who will become Paul. And And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Now just stop for a second because sometimes we can read through a scriptural passage and we don't really know what's being communicated. The language of verse 3 is fear-inducing language. We read that the church was enduring great persecution, and in verse 3, Saul is making havoc of the church. In extra-biblical writing, in writing other than the Bible, that Greek word that is translated made havoc communicates a boar tearing up a vineyard. It indicates a wild beast that is violently mangling or tearing apart or shredding a body to ribbons. What is being communicated is this is brutal and this is sadistic kind of cruelty. Saul is doing everything that he can do to tear, to rip, to shred the church. He is literally raging against the church like a wild beast. The next word tells us in verse 4 that as a result of this great persecution, whose key integer was Saul, the Bible says in verse 4, therefore, because of that, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. 
And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame, were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Now whether you know it or not, you have just witnessed the explosion of the gospel message reaching further out into the world because of persecution. Saul of Tarshish was a vindictive man. He took upon himself the office of persecutor and executioner of Christians. By his own testimony in Acts 22.4, here's what he says of himself. I persecuted this way. Now, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, which early on, They who were followers of Christ would say they were followers of the way. And Paul is saying, I persecuted this way unto the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. He is communicating that I persecuted the church and imprisoned people. He'll come back and he'll tell the believers at Galatia, for ye have heard of my conversation, my previous life, In time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure, I persecuted the church of God and wasted it. When he writes to the believers in Galatia, so broad, so general, so widely known was his persecution of the church that he assumes, you've heard of my violent persecution against the church. What the church is going through in Acts chapter 8, by the scripture's description, is great persecution. We are able to put a face on the persecution. It is Saul. We are able to describe the violence and the cruelty of the persecution by understanding what made havoc was. What we tend to get lost in is how in the world... Can God ever use satanically infused hatred against the church and against the word of God for his glory and for his good? And that's the question I want to study out this morning. On the day that the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives, he reiterated to the apostles that were gathered there, the small group of people, what we would term the Great Commission. It's the mandate for believers to take the gospel message around the world. And Jesus says this in Acts 1.8, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses Unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. That's the commission. Now, if you were paying attention when we read those first eight verses in Acts 8, and that's a big if, right? If you were paying, if you're paying attention now, and that's a bigger if. But if you were paying attention when we read the first eight verses in that chapter, what you heard was this. They went into Judea, that Philip went down to Samaria, and later on in this passage, he's going to go out into the desert where he will encounter the Ethiopian eunuch, the uttermost part of the earth. In Acts chapter 8, we see the spread of the gospel message from Jerusalem 
into Judea, unto Samaria, and into the uttermost part of the earth. And the reason that it spread like that was because of great persecution. Now you might be thinking, like I would after I read the Great Commission, that the gospel message is so wonderful It is so filled with grace, it is so full of mercy and forgiveness, that it must have been welcomed everywhere that it went. Take a look around our world today, and you know as well as I do that the gospel message is anything but welcomed. And what we have here in the book of Acts is the story of how the gospel message spread, and the story is a bloody one. In fact, I believe as one author said, mark it. Persecution began the missionary effort to the world. And hardship and adverse conditions can still propagate that message and infuse believers with energy. All we want to do is simply walk through these verses and unlock, unpack a study and learn from it. And the first person that we meet in verse 1 is Saul. Saul the persecutor. Now, by the time we reach Acts chapter 8, historically speaking, it won't be long before Christians are being fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum. Now, we must understand what the church was actually working against. You have the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Court in Israel. You have the high priests, you have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees. This group of elite people were the instigators in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But no doubt, Roman government was involved. And so the cause of Christ was working against the religion of the day. And in short order, the culture of the day, the Roman Empire, will attack the church as violently as the Sanhedrin did. In fact, Christians will be accused of cannibalism early for their observance of the Lord's Supper. Christians would be accused in their day of bringing floods and hurricanes and other natural disasters. It is going to be Christians who will be blamed for the great fire that would destroy much of Rome, even though it was Nero himself who started the fire. History tells us that Nero who was not a sane man, would take Christians as part of this persecution and he would impale them on tall poles, cover them in pitch and tar, and light them on fire for his garden parties. The culture of Rome was adverse to the cause of Christ. The religion of the day in Jerusalem and surrounding region of Judea and Samaria was adverse to the cause of Christ, and Saul single-handedly took on the role of supreme inquisitor and grand executioner of anybody who was a Christian. If ever there was a day in which it was hard to pursue Jesus Christ with passion and to proclaim your belief in the way, the only way of salvation as being the shed blood of Jesus, this was a hard time. By the time we get to the second verse, Stephen is buried. Devout men bury Stephen. They make great lamentation over him. People are scattered abroad except the apostles. That phrase is in there. 
which communicates great bravery to me. They stay on the battle lines. They stay right there in Jerusalem where they have already been twice arrested. They have already been beaten. They have already been shamed into inactivity and they have been intimidated into silence or at least that was the effort. But the apostles stay on the front line proclaiming the message. In the verse that I shared earlier, three, we see that Paul is violently ripping apart families. That Paul is violently, and I say Paul, interchanging him with Saul, he will become Paul. Thank God for the grace to change his name. He goes in and he tells us this in Acts 22.5. He said, the high priest doth bear me witness, all the estate of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound unto Jerusalem for to be punished. He says, I left Jerusalem. I was on my way to Damascus because anybody that was there that was a Christian, I was going to bind them and bring them back to Jerusalem to be imprisoned and punished. He'll say this in verse 19. They know that I am imprisoned and beat in every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. It was Jewish custom to attend the synagogue. Even newly saved individuals were still upholding that custom of going to the synagogue. And when they dared stand in the synagogue and take the prophetic readings and apply them to Jesus, when they dared say these prophetic readings were speaking of the Messiah, who is Jesus of Nazareth, individuals like Saul would go into every synagogue and he would physically and violently and cruelly beat them. Listen to how vividly Saul describes this in Acts 26. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, and they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. If you are going to be compelled to blaspheme, use your imagination. That is going to take a great violent act against you. You will have to reach high levels of pain to, to proclaim blasphemy against what you believe. But this is what fueled the apostle. This is what Saul was all about. Violence against the church. It's not hard for me to imagine why the early Christians deeply feared this man, Saul. I think I could say to you, the last person on the face of the earth that you or I would have assumed would ever place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation and then become, in turn, one of the greatest emissaries for Jesus Christ that the world has ever known would be Saul the persecutor. But that's exactly what happened. Why? Because God is gracious. Can I challenge you to cease from passing judgment against somebody that you see in public as being beyond the reach of the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Can I encourage you to stop looking around a room like this on any given Sunday and deciding whether or not somebody is on the team because of what you can gather about their existence or their history or their life by merely looking at them? God can save anyone through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We're not the deciders of who comes to Jesus for salvation. God is. We're not the deciders of who has too much sin for the blood of Jesus to ever wash away. The reality is that the blood of Jesus can wash away all sins from every sinner that has ever existed or ever will exist. It was enough to save you and it was enough to save me and it's enough to save them. The problem isn't the power of the shed blood of Jesus. The promise, a problem is we fail to tell people because we're deciding who gets to hear it and who doesn't. They don't need to look like you. They don't need to think like you. They don't have to vote like you in order to get to heaven. They don't have to share your ideals. The blood of Jesus Christ can save anybody. Imagine that you're a part of this church, which by our best estimates is growing by about 10,000 people a year. You're witnessing miracles and powerful works, and all of a sudden you become public enemy number one. The object of hatred and derision and suspicion. You lose your job and you lose your home. This question races to the forefront of my mind. Why didn't God stop it? Why didn't God stop the killing then? Why did Stephen have to die? Why is God allowing Saul, the persecutor, to go into synagogues and take out Innocent individuals who are simply proclaiming that they believe in Jesus. Why did God allow them to be beaten? Why did God allow them to die? I cannot explain it. All I know is that through the lens of history, I can somewhat grasp that God was using it to spread the gospel message around the world and that Saul the persecutor himself will become part of the answer only by God's grace. Can the murderous, treacherous, violent Saul be turned into the blood-washed Apostle Paul who himself will be imprisoned and beaten for the name of Jesus Christ? God can save anyone. Don't give up. We also meet in this passage of Scripture, Philip, the evangelist. Did you know the direct product of the violent persecution that we read of, it's found in verse 4 that they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the word. Scattered abroad everywhere preaching the word. The word that is used there for preaching, we could transliterate that Greek word into the English word to evangelize, evangelizing. What it simply communicates is that these men and women who were scattered abroad went everywhere that they were compelled or forced by the persecution to go and they were speaking the name of Jesus. God was moving the church into the next phase of the Great Commission and he was using hardship and persecution to get it done. Everywhere that these people went, they declared the name of Jesus. Now, here's what I want to keep revisiting. The behavior of the Sanhedrin, by empowering Saul the persecutor to go into synagogues and to beat and imprison and murder and maim Christians, was an all-out effort, satanically influenced, to silence the message of Jesus. 
In Acts chapter 4, we read of it. In Acts chapter 5, we witness it. 6 and 7 and here in 8. They are always attempting to shame into silence and to intimidate into inactivity the name of Jesus Christ. The direct result of this great persecution is that these Christians are literally losing their livelihoods. They are losing their homes and they are being forced out of Jerusalem into the Judean hillside and the villages that surround it and even out into Samaria. And yet the very attempt to stamp out the name of Jesus only flings the embers of that fire into the surrounding villages because everywhere they went, they spoke the name and truth of Jesus. If ever we had to put our finger on the impotency of the modern era church, I believe that it would be simply summed up in the reality that believers like us do not see ourselves as informal missionaries taking the name of Jesus with us everywhere we go. Too many are silent about Jesus Christ. I take a look around the church, not just our church, but the church at large. And I find that the longer that we're in church, the more we take for granted that everybody knows who Jesus is. I will also tell you that I feel like it is possible, this is very particular to our church, that we become charlatanized pretty quickly. Now, if you're watching online, that's completely lost on you. I understand that. Some people say, well, you know, Charlotte is a major, major city. How many of you had to drive down 84 to come to church today? All of you did, okay? Let me help you. All of you did because our church is on 84. <laughs> Every one of you. Did. How many of you didn't know, didn't know how you got here, right? <laughs> they have to do that to me sometimes. They make me take a little something and I show up and I'm here. I, otherwise, I wouldn't come. You see all those trees out there? There's a lot of trees, which indicates to me I am not in the midst of a major city. Philip the Evangelist is going out now. The Bible simply tells us. He goes out into Samaria, verse 5 says, and he preaches Christ unto them. This last week, I was in Toronto, Canada, which is an international city on a scale that boggles my mind. As I got to Toronto, I was explaining to my wife that it is just multicultural on all sides, and there is a heavy Asian influence that is there in Toronto, and I told her people wanted to take their pictures with me. Everywhere that I went, I was speaking at the conference as the service would end, people would line up to get their pictures with me, and I would, everybody was like down here, and I'd take a picture, 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 and I'm like, what? What am I doing? Now, secretly, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. People would come to me after the service with their Bible, and they would, this is not a joke, they would want me to sign their Bible. And I'm like, wait a second. I see how addictive this is. Let me sign your, oh, picture? Sure. Let me sign your Bible. Picture? Sure. 
Everywhere I was talking to people who were responding to me differently. Some would come up and bow to me. Some would come up and shake my hand. Some would come up and look at me like, who are you? And I would say, if you don't know me by now, I'm the one everyone wants their picture with. (laughs) Duh. I was wearing a suit all week. It's not the most comfortable thing. I was wearing a suit all week. When I went back to my hotel, everybody that worked at the hotel was international, and they were dumbfounded that I was wearing a suit. I'd come up, hey, we don't see people around here dressed like that. Well, I'm a super weird Baptist from the States. This is how I dress. Yes, I look like I'm doing a funeral. I understand. They wanted to get pictures with me. The guy at the desk on the next day wore a black suit with a black tie because I wore a black suit with a black tie the day before. The influence that I had, it was a little Paul-like. I'm going to (laughs) say Paul. Not the Paul of the Bible, a guy I know from high school named Paul. As I was interacting with them, I was coming in contact with people from Sri Lanka and people from the Philippines and people from Africa. I met a man who was there from Jamaica. And as I was interacting with them, here is what I began to think. Not one of these people is interested in my American ideology. Now, one of these people here really is interested beyond a mere curiosity as to why I am wearing a suit. But I do know something, regardless of where you come from, or what type of food you eat, or where you currently live or are currently employed, that will make all the difference in this world to you, and it is the name of Jesus Christ. And when Philip the evangelist went down to Samaria, he did not say to them, let me tell you about the Jewish religion. A Samaritan did not trust the Jew because the Samaritan was looked at as a half-breed. It was literally a term of derision. You're intermingled with the Gentiles. Philip the evangelist didn't go there and say, let me tell you about life in Jerusalem. He didn't go there and say, let me tell you about Jewish law. He didn't go there and say, let me tell you about this robe that I wear and my preaching sandals. He went there and he preached unto them Christ. And they received Christ. Do you realize The ravenous hunger that exists in our world can only be satisfied with the name of Jesus Christ. And you look around you, and while I can go there and I can see a multicultural place and I am aware you don't even know who Jesus is, I come back here and I think to myself, everybody knows Jesus. And I want you to grasp this, though they might have a nice home, And though they might be gainfully employed in a comfortable job and drive a nice car, the hunger for Jesus is as real here as it is anywhere. Your job and my job is not to sell some ideology to people. It's to tell them about Jesus Christ. When James and Paige were baptized just a little bit ago, I said they were invited to come to church by their neighbor. (gasps) that works. There are some people who have been in church for decades upon decades upon decades, and it's literally been years since they've had anybody come to church with them. They're good at being weird. They're good at being angry, great at being self-righteous and condescending, just really bad at telling people about Jesus. 
New people who come to church, new people saved, find they're a little more energetic to tell others about Jesus and their church. The longer that you're here, the more idiosyncratic things you can pick out that you don't like. The newer that you are here, the more you're just like, I kind of like that Jesus is here. And rather than growing into maturity and finding a fervency to tell others about Jesus growing and burning within us, we find that it's deadening inside of us and we actually have no impact on the street that we live on for the name of Jesus, even though we're telling all of them about our ideology, about our philosophy of life, they don't see anything in us that tells them about Jesus. You say, now hold on. Everything in me. Does everything that you're showing them show them what you believe and not Jesus? Or does any part of you show them Jesus? Because thank God for new Christians who are on fire and fervent to tell other people about Jesus and to invite some here. Because if it was all like you and it was all like me, would anybody ever come? Anybody? It's stunning. The impetacy of the local church as it exists now is not because the blood of Jesus doesn't work. It's because we're not telling people about Jesus and what we're showing them is not worth emulating. There's no appetite for what we have. That's why many churches are literally dying on the vine. Dried up and rotting out corpses. They're merely clubs where people get together and high-five each other for condescending self-righteousness. That was the weakest high-five ever. Why did my leg come off the ground? I don't know. I've decided as I turned 46 this week, well, come on. Come on. I'm just assuming the wow is because I look 25. I've decided I'm going to just now be that guy. I've been 18 years in the pulpit. I'm 46. I looked at the Constitution recently, and I'm like, you've got to have a really high percentage to fire me. So I'm pretty safe. We've grown a lot. All the new people love me. So they haven't figured it out yet. I'm like, I'm pretty safe. So I'm just going to say stuff like, if you aren't telling somebody about Jesus, I don't care that you're 20 or 30 years into the game and you know exactly how to act and how to carry yourself. If you have no impact for Jesus, you're living in sin. You're living in sin. Well, I try, right. But if they're looking at you and thinking to themselves, I don't want anything that you are, what are you showing them? Are you even showing them Jesus? Because Philip went to a city in Samaria from Jerusalem where they were viewed as half-breeds. And the Bible tells us that when Philip arrived there, that they gladly accepted the message of the gospel. And the Bible tells us that the city in verse 8 was filled with great joy. They accepted it. Because when Philip arrived on the scene, he told them about Jesus. He didn't sell them or market them some philosophy on life or some outlook. He made a difference where he was because he told them about Jesus. I would say to you that in the villages around Judea, all the way down into Samaria, this influx of persecuted poverty-stricken, shamed into silence, intimidated into an action, group of ragamuffin, misfit followers of Jesus had a greater impact than us sitting in our pristine building here because they went about telling people who Jesus was and what he'd done for them. 
When was the last time you just did that? Impacted your street, impacted your office for Jesus. Sometimes God works to use the very obstacles thrown into the paths of Christians to advance his cause. God used the pressure of persecution to place individual believers in circumstances where they develop their spiritual gifts and they tell other people the truth concerning Jesus. I would say this to you as I simply try to apply what I read in Acts chapter 8, that we should expect hardship as believers. Anybody who is trying to tell you or me that because of the hardship that exists in this world and the media agenda that is against our ideology and the world as we know it and, and, and big corporate companies are going against what we believe and say, I would say to you, this is not a death knell on our message. This does not take us down a notch. This unlocks the doors for us to tell the revolutionary truth about Jesus Christ. So I would say to you, take the gospel with you everywhere you go. And expect hardship. I love reading Spurgeon. I read this week, Spurgeon said, there is hardship in everything except eating pancakes. (laughs) It's never going to be easy to tell somebody about Jesus. You're always going to stand out. You are a weirdo. I've met you. Let me burst your bubble. You're weird. And the fact that you follow Christ makes you stranger in a world that is ruled by deception. Every time you tell somebody about Jesus, you are doing a revolutionary act of telling them the truth in a world dominated by deception. Take the gospel with you everywhere you go. And then I would say this, remain confident in God's sovereign control. You might think to yourself, well, I'd love to stay confident in God's sovereign control, but you don't know my circumstances. God was at work in Acts 8. And I'd say he's at work where you are now, no matter what life holds for you at any given moment, no matter what the consensus of popular opinion might be about the Lord we know as Savior. One thing is certain. God has the last word. And God has placed you here and now. And hardship has always spread the gospel message. Take the name of Jesus with you and remain confident in God's sovereign control and tell others. There's a great passage of scripture in Hebrews chapter 10, just before the hall of faith of Hebrews 11. Here's what we read in Hebrews 10, 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, Ye endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me and my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance." Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You say, I, I get from your tone that I'm to be encouraged by that. I'm lost. Let me say it to you this way. Remember those early days after you first came to Christ and saw the light? Those were the hard times. Remember when the early church was kicked around in public and they were the target of every kind of abuse? 
Some days it was you, other days your friends. He's saying if some friends went to prison, you stuck by them. If some enemies broke in and seized your goods, you let them go with a smile, knowing they couldn't touch your real treasure. Nothing they did bothered you. Nothing set you back. So don't throw it all away now. You were sure of yourselves then. It's still a sure thing now, but you need to stick it out. Staying with God's plan so you'll be there for the promised completion. It won't be long now. He's on the way. He'll show up almost any minute, but anyone who is right with me thrives on this. If he cuts and runs, I won't be happy, but we're not quitters who lose out. Oh no, we'll stay with it and survive, trusting all the way. That's what he's writing. Remember when you had guts? Remember when you cared? Remember when you made a difference? I look back at the days of being a church planter. My wife and I moved here, and you're really poor, and nobody goes to church. It's like when church ends and you clean up the chairs and all 13 people go home, you're like, well, it's Monday. What are you going to do? Well, I've got to pastor my church. What church, dude? Um, got to write sermons for next week. But my sermons were so ridiculous that they could fit on like a three by five card. It'd take me like 11 minutes. But I don't know. I don't know why people came. But I do know this. We would hunt down every contact. Like, I was at the grocery store, and when I checked out, I told the lady I went to a new church, and she said she might be interested in the new church. What store was it? What did she look like, and what register was she on? I need to go tell her to come to church. Now, I can stand in the lobby, and there are people here that I don't know. We're getting ready to build again. And slowly, but surely, and deliberately over time, our fervency ebbs more and more and more. And people like you who used to tell everybody that you knew about Jesus, now that the world's a little different, you've been shamed into silence and intimidated into inaction. And when you once would have told them, and you once would have even offered to pick them up, and you would have encouraged them that you were going to save them a seat, now it's just problematic because you already can't park and there are already no seats. Why would you ever do that? Tell somebody about Jesus And as we read in Hebrews 10, don't quit now. I'll reference Spurgeon again. He said, some of you can remember the former days when you joined the church, when you had to run the gauntlet for Christ's sake. Then, in your early Christian life, you feared nothing and nobody as long as you could glorify God. But now, you focus so much on the things that just bother you, and you focus so much on the things that can't be done, that you've ceased to just be passionate about one thing that we should always be doing. Tell somebody about Jesus. Easter's next week. People come to church for Easter. You have somebody this week you're going to come in contact with. Tell them about Jesus and invite them to church. Would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, Head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is gracewaycharlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.